Hi, and thanks so much for tuning in to the Traveling in Ireland podcast. Today, I have a very, very special guest, author Mary Pat Kelly, who has written two wonderful novels, um, Galway Bay and Of Irish Blood, both of which are very, very personal to her, and I cannot wait to share these stories with you. So, Mary Pat, thank you so much for chatting with me today. My pleasure, Jody. Though I wish we were both where we'd met the last time in Ireland, but it's great to, great to be with you. <laughs> oh, yes, Ashford Castle. You can't really beat that, can you? No, you can't. Is that a year ago or is it two years ago? It was two year years ago. ago. No, it was two, two. years ago. Oh, my goodness. It was two. I know. I can't hardly believe it either. Just time, time no, seems to be right around fly. Halloween. I remember that. It was because we, we had just um, just gotten there. The girls were doing the Halloween uh, festivities at the castle. So, right. so it was. You've been great. so fantastic about finding things for families to do because I think Ireland is really a treasure for kids, but you have to look a little carefully. So, thanks to you, Jody. Oh well, thank you. That's very kind. It's you know, it's just one of those places that is really you know the magic just wells up from within it and and makes it so easy. I think for. Um, for people to find things that really will click with them. Um, but that's something that you, I mean, you've kind of learned that as well as you've, as you've visited. Yes, I have. And um, I had, the, the first time I went to Ireland, it did feel magical. It felt like um, kind of I was drawn by a very kind of strange thing that happened <laughs> In uh, 1969, my friend and I had spent a year working our first jobs, and we wanted to travel. I mean, as you did in those days. Mm -hmm. We deep saved $500, which we figured would last us six months. So that tells you what what the world was like then. Right. But even though she was Irish-American and I was too, when we thought of where we would go, we didn't think about Ireland. Now, I grew up being extremely proud of being Irish. Mm-hmm. And if your name's Mary Pat Kelly, you, you're <laughs> automatically, right? And in Chicago, where I grew up, I mean, the first song I ever learned was Cheer, Cheer for Old Notre Dame, which oh, wow. I thought was an mm-hmm. Irish song. And then McNamara's, the other was McNamara's Band, and both were the same message, that uh, whether the odds are great or small, we're going to win overall, and we're the finest in the land. And that's how I grew up. But Ireland itself seemed this place of kind of, as you say, magic and mystery, and it was a place you could see in movies and hear in stories, but it wasn't like a real place that you could go to. And so when we started out, we didn't even put Ireland on our itinerary. The first place we went was London because of the Beatles and Carnaby Street (laughs) and all the things that the 60s were. And we found out that the cheapest way to stay in in London was to rent a room in someone's house. You could find, there were index cards put up at um, American Express. And so I called up the woman. Oh, yes, she was very happy to have us. And um, she loved Americans because we paid in cash in <laughs> advance. So that was good. So off we went. And I remember it was like a, a townhouse. We walked up the stairs. There was a big brass knocker. And when she opened the door, she said to us, I can't do her accent, but she said, Oh, girls, I'm such a silly billy. I forgot to ask your name. So my friend said, I'm Mary Beth O'Hara. And I said, I'm Mary Pat Kelly. And she said, Irish? And we said, yes, you know, <laughs> here we are. And she's lucky. And she slammed the door in our face. And she, right, 19, she wouldn't rent to us. This oh was 1969. <laughs> and we had no idea what had happened because, as I said, I grew up being very proud to being Irish, thinking, Anybody who would have two Irish girls on their front steps would be delighted. And it was an African student that explained to us that the English still had prejudice against the Irish. And, I mean, it's hard now maybe to (laughs) exactly. And uh, it's funny because I told this story once, and I could see some of the women didn't actually believe me. And there was an English woman there, and she said, oh, no, that's how we were raised. She said, when I came here and saw ads for Irish Spring Soap, she said, I thought it was a joke because the Irish don't bathe, right? So here we are, we're just shocked, and but, and it was the first time I had ever been rejected, not for who I was as an individual, but for the idea that someone had about me. Uh However, when I look back, I thank her 
because before that time, being Irish was just as natural as breathing. I didn't really think much about it except to be glad. But I wanted now to understand more what it meant to be Irish. And I think because of that kind of heightened consciousness, I noticed a story in the paper the next day talking about um, a special performance of Waiting for Godot at the Abbey Theater because Samuel Beckett had just won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Mm -hmm. And part of the deal was that there was a cheap flight on Aer Lingus. It was only 10 pounds return which maybe was like $50 now. Mm-hmm. And um, so now I'd like to say that Mary Beth and I were very interested in Samuel Beckett. We didn't know who Samuel Beckett was, <laughs> but it's it starred Peter O'Toole. And, of course, we knew a lot about Peter O'Toole. <laughs> so we went, and um, the first thing that we got there, it, the deal was we had to go very late at night on Saturday night. We got to Dublin Airport. And as you know now, Dublin Airport is fantastic. I mean, all glass, mm-hmm. shops. Everything then, it was a very, very, it was like, I think, two-story building. And the way you got into town was you took a bus. You took a city bus that would wait for passengers. Mm-hmm. So it was about midnight, and we were freezing cold, and we ran, got on the bus. And we'd had problems on the buses in London, because at that time, you had to know where you were going and what the fare was, which we never knew. Right. And we were always getting in trouble with the conductors. And this, and they had a little machine that cranked out the tickets, and they'd be always very impatient holding on to that machine. So here comes the Dublin bus conductor, same uniform, same little machine, and we were really trying to find our money, do the right thing, and he stopped and he said, would you ever relax, girls, you're home, right? So we were like, oh, my goodness. Now, in Chicago, we have an expression about somebody who has the map of Ireland on their face. So I've been accused of that, Mm -hmm. complimented that way. And my friend was even more so because she had red hair and freckles. And the next morning when we got up and we went out on the streets of Dublin, we realized he was right because the faces were the faces of people we'd grown up with. I followed a woman. I thought it was my aunt that she, you know, I had. And then when we went to church, I said to Mary Beth, this is the 10 o'clock mass at Queen of All Saints. It's, these are people we knew. And so I just, I, mean, I said, wait a minute, let me find out more. So. The play wasn't until Wednesday. This was Sunday morning. So through a lot of convoluted things, we managed to rent a car, and we headed out into the countryside. And as you know, nothing is greener than the Irish countryside. And it was a beautiful day. And, you know, there was a rainbow later. And we the first we went to our first pub that night. And then, as now, people entertain each other in the pubs. And this man stood up. And he started reciting Dangerous Dan McGrew and the lovely Lady Lou. And after every verse, someone bought him a pint, right? Well, I think there's like 30 verses in that poem. <laughs> and he stumbled and went down near me. And uh, he looked up at me and he said, Jesus falls the first time. And, and then I handed him a napkin and he said, Veronica wipes the face of Jesus. So I thought, you know what? I mean, these Irish writers, they didn't make up anything, James Joyce and the rest. They just wrote down what they heard. And mm-hmm. and then we left the pub. We left the pockets full of cigarettes. We didn't smoke. But you, the people were so generous, you finally just accepted their <laughs> cigarettes. And this is when Ireland was not a wealthy mm-hmm. uh, nation at the time. But the people, so anyway, that was the beginning. We had an amazing time. We drove all over. And the strange thing is, I really felt drawn to Connemara. One of my, the first, second or third night, we were in a place called um, Uttarard, you know, which mm-hmm. is kind of the gateway to Connemara, yep. Galway. And the woman who was had the bed and breakfast was called Mary Kelly, you know, my same right. name. And at the, and while we, so we had a wonderful breakfast, she brought out, I remember she brought out all her wedding things, like a lace tablecloth and her best china. And while we were having breakfast, this woman came in, an old woman, and she, she still spoke Irish and sat by the fire. It was like something out of a movie, and she was talking to the woman in Irish, and I said, what is she asking? And uh, she said, she's interested in in you, and, and and we said, well, you know, tell her, yes, we're Irish. And then she said something, and the woman said, she wants to know what county your people are from. And so I said, Cook County, you know, Chicago, because that's all I do. <laughs> 
and I can remember that the woman just looked, and then I tried to explain that I didn't know where we were from. I, I really just knew that we were Irish, and so, and I didn't realize that I was about maybe 10 miles from where my great-great-grandmother had been born, but it would take me another 40 years to find it. But that started it, and I, when I came back from that trip, I thought to myself, I have to learn more about being Irish because the music and the stories, but it was more the people and their kindness and their humor and the conversations that are so great. You know all this. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of the countryside. It's really funny because I fell in love, especially with Connemara, Galway Bay, and just how beautiful it all was, and yet how there was a, a kind of a, a, a Stony beauty, you know, these were people that did not have an easy time of it, and yet they had found a way to be so warm and, and loving and gracious to strangers. So that started me on my path. When I came back, I um, decided that I wanted to learn more. I, I went on. I would get my Ph.D. in Irish studies. I, I had went to, went to film school. That's a whole other chapter <laughs> of my life, but I really did want to make movies about Ireland, tell stories about Ireland and learn more about Ireland, and that was the beginning, and it continued for a number of years. I did go over, I made a documentary about John Hume, who would go on to win the Nobel Peace Prize. I wrote my dissertation called um, The Sovereign Woman, Her Image in the Literature of Ireland. My uh, dissertation advisor told me it would make a great operetta, because it was about figures like Queen Maeve, you know, mm -hmm. who led armies and took lovers, and not the kind of Irish woman we'd heard about growing up, right? <laughs> Right. In novels. So I, but I, there still was always that question from people, well, you know, what county are your people from? Even when I married, I, my husband is from County Tyrone. When we went, we've been married 30 years. When I went to visit his family, the first question was, you know, and they kept introducing me as the American, <laughs> the Martin, you know, this is the American. And I kept, I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm Irish too. And his aunt said to me, well, where's your home place? And I said, well, I don't know. And then it was, this is the American, right? So I really felt that as much as I'd fallen in love with Ireland, kind of the general Ireland, I wanted to really specifically find that piece of earth where my family was from. And it was not easy because both my grandparents had died when my father was very young. And Kelly is such a common name when mm -hmm. you try to find it. And I, I went to Ireland with my father in 1979 to see if I could, you know, if he would join me in a search for roots. And the first, we had, he had a notion that Galway had something to do with it. But when we went to the Galway City Hall or something, I remember he knocked on the door and he introduced himself to the man, explained, you know, that he, he said, hello, uh, my name is Michael J. Kelly. And the man said, so's mine. You know, <laughs> so's everybody in Galway. So, so we and then he asked us all kinds of questions and I knew so little. I didn't know my the maiden names of anybody. I didn't know anything. And um, but that was a great moment then because the Pope had just been in Galway just two weeks before, and the man gave my father a, a um, pen and he said, "This is the pen that the Pope used to sign our visitors' book, and you can sign it too." So my father did, and then the man took the pen and made the sign of the cross over my father and said, there, you've got a papal blessing. And I felt like he was saying, you're never going to find your roots. But, you know, you're going to go straight to heaven. So, and, and he said to my dad, now you're enrolled in the county of your ancestors. So that was enough. My father didn't have that same need to connect to a specific place, mm -hmm. but I really did. And it took me really until 2000, the year 2000, to find the exact place. I had been looking, but when they started to computerize the records, it helped. And also, my father had a cousin who lived to be 107 years old. Oh, wow. And when she was about 95, I thought, wait a minute, she was a nun in Dubuque, Iowa, in fact, uh, not too far from uh -huh. you. And um, she, of course, I said, well, wait a minute, she was born in 1889. She would have to know something about the people that came over. And sure enough, she knew my great-great-grandmother, Honora Keeley Kelly, and knew that she'd come over with her children, but she didn't know. She'd actually known her, spent time with her, uh -huh. but she didn't know where they were from either, the specific place. And I think that's true of a lot of Irish Americans. I mean, you know you're Irish, but mm -hmm. really only until the last maybe 15 or 20, maybe 
30 years have people really been able to find out because things were computerized. And that's what happened to me. And I finally did discover her birth certificate and found out that she was born in Barna, which is about uh, five miles outside of Galway. It's a fish, it was a fishing village. Mm-hmm. And it becomes very important in Galway Bay. And also, her maiden name was Keeley, and the Keeleys came from Connemara. So I, I did have those Connemara roots. And where I was in Utrecht wasn't far from any of those places. So I have always been drawn to the West, and um, I love all of Ireland, and we have great times everywhere. But there's something about the West and Connemara and the beautiful lakes. I love, there's a place in Connemara called Loch Ina mm-hmm. Lodge that you, you could really be back. It's completely timeless. There's not a telephone pole. You just sit there and look at the lake and the mountains. And they say, I was told this now, sometimes you hear things you're not that the mountains in Connemara were once taller than the Alps, but that they're so old that they've been worn down to a much smaller. So anyway, that's a long way around to answer your question. <laughs> that's what drew me to Ireland. So someday I'm going to go find that woman and thank her. Oh, that is just an amazing story. I love that story. Um, and what you say about finding your roots in Ireland is so true because my family name is Kelly. I don't know if I've ever told you that. Um, I don't think you have. So, yeah, so my family name is Kelly, but it uh, it goes back a bit further than yours. My my ancestor came over in the early 1800s, so far as we can trace. And and so trying to find the connection, you know, from that point. I know, point to make back. that leap. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know. Much, I mean, I was really lucky. My great-grandmother, great-great-grandmother was born in 1822, and that was the first year that the records were kept mm-hmm. in that particular parish. And um, do you have any idea where, what part of Ireland? Nope, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kelly is the second most common name of I- in Ireland. And exactly. they really are all over the place. And there is some thought that they might have originated in, in like, County Tyrone, so mm-hmm. a long way from where they are now, which is Galway and Roscommon. And- right. It's You know, it's an ongoing search, and it's, I mean, it's a fun puzzle, but I want to go back to to your story because you were able to find out so very much um, about your history and your family history. And so was was the finding out and the learning the stories. Is that is that why you decided to write the books? Because the stories that you tell in Galway Bay and of Irish blood are so robust and detailed and and they just they draw you in to the story and the time and the lives of of that period so is is that what really you know made you want to share the stories just because they were so fascinating yes i mean um, first of all thank you very much that's nice to hear right now i'm writing this third book and it's going very slowly so I'm going to take those words and like you know put them on the wall or something (laughs) but what really happened was because I was you know academically I I did do a lot of Irish literature and got interested in the archaeology everything Mm -hmm. and Kelly when your name is Kelly of course there's it's a two-way sword one it's very hard to find your own family but on the other hand you run into a lot of Kelly's and there's even a book in the Royal Irish Academy, which is a book of the Kellys, which was written in like the 14th century, and it's an illuminated manuscript. It's kind of, it's on the order of the Book of Kells, maybe a more modest Book of Kells. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I I started to feel that there was this network of belonging out there that I had some connection to, and the stories were so great. Like in this Book of the Kellys, one important part is it's like, it's let us now praise famous women. So I was just fascinated by all these heroines of Irish history that were so different. They weren't just saints and, uh, you know, nuns and everything. I mean, they were the wives of chieftains. They, they ruled in their own right. There was Grace O'Malley, the pirate queen. So that kept resonating with me. And then um, when I did find my own family history and looked at the dates that my great-great Grand, my great-grandfather was born, mm-hmm. it was 1840. And then another one was born in 1842 and 1845. And then that was it, you know, because... And I had done enough Irish history now to realize that that was the great starvation. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, well, of course, that's why my family 
left. I mean, they were fleeing, mm-hmm. they were escaping. And um, I had been very moved. This is really around the 150th anniversary, which was 1997. I, I thought, boy, I really want to write about that, but it's hard to do it either in the abstract or make up totally fictional characters. But when I had that moment and realized this is my own story, that really motivated me to take the information I had from my own academic studies and also the information I would find. I would go to these libraries, the local libraries or local history um, centers, and I would get there's – a, there's a part in Galway Bay where the landlord takes the first night of the bride. Mm-hmm. In other words, forces the bride. Now, that is true, and they had records. Uh, there were people that knew the stories of that particular landlord, and that was very common in mm-hmm. Ireland. People think it goes back to medieval times and Braveheart or something, but it was going on well into the 20th century, right. and I was this was in the 18th. So I thought, wow, I want to tell this story. I want to use everything historical, but I want to base it around the stories that I know of my own family, which was that she did come over as a widow, that she had these children, that they um, landed in Chicago in a place called Hard Scrabble mm-hmm. that became Bridgeport, but I think Hard Scrabble tells it all. <laughs> and and then once I knew the landscape, uh, spending time in Barna, another place where they had their farm, and then out to Karna and to the further out west in Connemara, what I think happened was that they were fishermen and they came in closer to Galway. Mm-hmm. And so I, I got all these wonderful stories. And then I realized that I was kind of putting um, flesh on the skeleton of what I knew about my own family. And then a strange thing happens when you're writing. The characters kind of take over. And my first time through, I told it in the third person, and it just didn't work. But mm-hmm. the, the second time I was trying to tell the story, Honora started speaking, my, who is my great-great-grandmother. And once that happened, then I started to feel, really connect with these people and because uh, they were my own people. And also, the Great Starvation is such a painful episode. I mean, when you think a million people starving to death while food is being exported. It's, mm-hmm. And, and the, you know, it was in a small area. It was mostly in the West. I mean, Ireland itself is only half the size of the state of Illinois. Right. So you take a quarter of that. So it was, everyone was was affected except the landlords. Barna, where I, that I was writing about, at the time um, when there was this little fishing village, and they were having a tough time, of course, always, but they managed. And then, of course, when the blight killed the potato, the source of food. Now, why were they dependent on the potato? Because... The land had been taken, and they were paying rent. The rents went higher and higher. The mm-hmm. the fish and the crops were for the landlord to pay mm-hmm. the rent, but potatoes would sustain them. So on one night, the landlord evicted everyone from this fishing hamlet mm-hmm. and burned the cottages to the ground. Why? Because he wanted to sell the land for a seaside resort because it was right on Galway Bay. Mm-hmm. Now... This was in the midst of the Great Starvation when there were bodies in the road. So it just showed the disconnect. And I just wanted to tell the story, but I wanted not just to be the victims, the way we usually see with these illustrations of the bedraggled. Mm -hmm. I wanted to show that these were real people with real lives that had had lived. Life was never easy, but it was joyful. I mean, they had their family, they had their faith, and with the potato, they had enough to eat. So these are my family. I mean, these are people. And I think too often books that I had read about the Great Starvation, the Irish are just kind of this, uh, these ciphers, these victims. Mm-hmm. And first of all, when I was doing the, the research, there were demonstrations. At one point, they closed the port in Galway to try to keep the food from being sent out. Right. But of course, they were going against 30,000 troops, British troops that were there, where it was on pain of death that you would even try to take grain from Mm -hmm. a food cart that was going. So I felt that because these were my own people, this was me in a way, I could write about them without the kind of objectification that I found too often in um, other books and and more, you know... As a writer, to get inside a character, I think you have to feel an affinity. And the fact that these were my own flesh and blood helped me to really connect. 
and also the miracle that she escaped and she got her kids out. That mm-hmm. I mean, my very existence depended on the resilience and the courage of this one woman, and that was really true of everybody, true of you, too. I mean, you're Kelly. Whoever got out, it was not easy. Right. Bet that. Right. And, and uh, I, I, I was just going to say that when I was reading Galway Bay, and and I think I had a copy, I mean, almost immediately when it came out, if not shortly before. Um, I, I can remember having to read some parts of it and then go back and reread it with and, and try to block the emotion that I was feeling. And I can remember crying at parts. I can remember, um, you know, feeling jubilant in parts because, you know, kind of like, you know, yeah, she got hers. You know, she, she right. took care of that. And, uh, yeah, it's it's really an emotional book. And so, you know, the writing of it, I can only imagine, um, was even well, it, more it, so it, for you. And it was like, for example, I asked Agnella, that was the name of this nun, over and over what Nora said, what did she say? And she kept saying, well, they didn't talk about it. They put mm-hmm. it aside, but, you know, it was too painful. But the one sentence she gave me was the first sentence of the prologue, which is, we wouldn't die and that annoyed them. The idea that they didn't die. I mean, they should right. have died. I mean, um, they really should have died. Your ancestors should have died. And the more, and then when I went on the book tour and I was talking to people, people came up to me from all different groups and said, well, it's the same with me. Mm-hmm. It was, I remember a, South, a woman from South Korea saying, we should have died. And my grandmother got us, you know, saved us. Right. And every ethnic group that you can imagine because somebody wanted somebody dead, whether it was the Middle Passage or genocide or mm-hmm. war, and and somebody survived, or we wouldn't be here. I mean, you and I sitting right here having this conversation is because of the great courage of many people in our ancestry, many people, and often it was a woman who just said, you know what, my children are going to live. I'm going to figure out some way for my children to live. And it's really, it made me so grateful just to be alive. And, and I did think at one point, I better be happy because a lot of people <laughs> look to hell for me, you know. Right. But no, it's a, and, and that's why I think the Irish story is so powerful because um, in one way, then the Irish did so well and they came, not without a lot of suffering. We mm-hmm. forget, maybe, or we don't forget that it was very difficult. The whole Irish need not apply. And on many of the projects they worked on, like digging the uh, canal, which is part of my story, and mm-hmm. it was 50% mortality. I mean, right. it, the conditions were so bad. But um, it is a story of triumph. I mean, and, in fact, that's what I'm writing about now is the Irish rise in politics. And I have these pictures of Honora's grandson, who is the mayor of Chicago, and his wife. And he's in a top hat. She's in an ermine coat. And I know that her mother was a laundress in a hotel in uh, St. Joe, Missouri, and washed Jesse James's underwear, and her daughter's <laughs> going to the opera in, a, you know, a full-length German coat. So, I, I, I don't know, it's, a, it's an incredible story, and it, I think, is emblematic of the American story, but for us Irish, and the fact that the Great Starvation is not well-known. It, right. I can tell you from going out, and, and people just have this, you know, notion, oh, yeah, wasn't there a problem with the potatoes? Mm-hmm. And why were they eating potatoes anyway? And why didn't they fish? Right. You know, there's very little understanding of what really happened. Right. And I think also the attachment, you and I know, I mean, we're in love with Ireland, right? Right. Can you imagine with the people that really live there and have this sense of the, the connection, the whole connection to the landscape is so deep, every holy well, every sacred mm-hmm. mountain. And then... To be uprooted from all that, it's a, it is an amazing story of survival. It, it really is. And to visit places where you can see that come to life, um, at the northern end, at the northern part of Connemara, right around the fjord. So you actually have to go uh-huh. clear around the fjord, and then you're in uh, Mayo. And right, clear around Kilray Harbor. Yep. yep. And then clear to the end of Mayo, there's a place there called the Lost Valley, and oh, wow. um, the people who own it, actually, it's ancestral, um, you know, great-great-grandparents lived there and were actually turned off the land, but wow. you can go back into there, and, and they'll walk through with you and tell you the family story, and because of the location of this place and its remoteness, 
fact, so very little has changed. So you can walk, you know, walk through the potato ridges and, you know, you can walk, you know, into these famine houses that have fallen down and, and the woods have taken them over. And, you know, you're right there on the ocean and just the, the history of, of place. I think that's one thing about Ireland is the history of place really permeates everything and makes it very I real. Think- I think that's a really good word, permeates. And I'm sure when you were walking on those ridges, you almost felt a connection to the people who had been there before. And, yeah, it is. uh, And I don't think there's many places in the world. Yes, Dublin is a modern city, and, yes, there's been modernization. But Mm -hmm. you can – that sounds like – it's called the Lost Valley. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, I mean – and and – that's that's a very valuable thing I think for us as human beings to connect that deeply to history and to the earth and to the people that went before us. It, I think it it makes us better. It makes us it widens our hearts. You know, opens our minds. So that's really right. a good place. I I have to make sure I go there next time. It's it's truly amazing, and uh, I'll make sure that you have the information for that. Thank and you. you've you've touched on your third book, um, which is going to be about Chicago and uh, a mayor, correct? Right. Honora's grandson, Ed Kelly, became the mayor of Chicago. Now, here, this is this is a flash. Okay. You've heard it since you got the Galway Bay early. <laughs> In Of Irish Blood, the character who is Honora's granddaughter mm-hmm. um, goes to Paris. In real life, I had a great aunt who did go to Paris. I think she went for work, but I have I have this Nora. Uh, kind of running from a bad boyfriend. Mm-hmm. I, I had a funny moment. My my own aunt knew this woman, and after I finished writing the book, I thought, oh, my gosh, because I've made him kind of jealous and violent. <laughs> You've got to get away from him. And I said to my aunt, Marge, I said, you know, I um, gave Aunt Noni this boyfriend, and I remember it's historical <laughs> fiction, and, I, and she stopped me, and she said, Aunt Noni had a lot of boyfriends. So I guess Aunt <laughs> Noni, I'm picking up something. So she goes to Paris, and she encounters the people of the Irish Revolution because mm-hmm. it's 1916 and and she meets Maud Gaughan and Thomas Markovitz and she actually goes to Ireland, gets involved fighting the black and tans. And I didn't put her in the general post office. Even I didn't go that far. But she does get involved and see what's going on. And then she has to come back to Chicago and I won't explain why. But um, when she comes back, she has learned how to be a photographer and she mm-hmm. continues that uh, doing that. And she's working with Ed Kelly, who's in the, who's um, head of, which is an important job in Chicago, of the sanitary district, yeah. which was the streets and the sewers and and a lot of jobs. And um, he had he was the one who rebuilt Lakeshore Drive mm-hmm. and built the um, uh, planetarium and the Buckingham Fountain. Anybody from Chicago knows these yeah. big landmarks. So she and he are um, had always been close, and he kind of helps her get reestablished with her photography. And um, the mayor at that time is an, a man called Anton Cermak, and this is 1933. And Roosevelt has just been elected, but a lot of the Irish politicians and a lot of the Democrats did not support Roosevelt right away, FDR, mm-hmm. because they were loyal to Al Smith, who was the first Catholic ever to run. So this is in real life. Um, Cermak decided to go down to Miami. Roosevelt, in those days, you didn't get inaugurated right away. So he was elected in November, but he wasn't going to be inaugurated until March. And in February, he'd been on a trip on the Astor Yacht and uh, stopped in Miami, and they had arranged for him to speak to a group. of The, the American Legion was having a, a convention down there. So anyway, they're all in the park, and he comes in an open car, this was before people really understood about his polio and that he couldn't mm-hmm. really stand, but he's in the, he's in the, and Cermak's idea is he's going to get really close to him and he wants my character, Nora, to take a photo and then he could put the photo in the paper and show that it's not true that Roosevelt is kind of being cool to him because he didn't support him. They're good friends. This is the depression. The thing that could save Chicago is getting federal money. So right. that's his plan in my story. In real life, he did go down there. Now, um, in real life, he was while he was standing next to Franklin Roosevelt, there was an assassination attempt on Roosevelt. The bullet missed Roosevelt and hit Cermak. Oh, wow. And two weeks later, he died. Yeah. So, 
And then Kelly was appointed to be mayor after Sermat, which was a total out of the blue because he wasn't even a politician. So in my story now, I have her, her mission is to get this photograph. So the first lines of the book are, I killed Franklin, I killed, I saved Franklin (laughs) Roosevelt's life and killed Anton Sermat with two words. Move closer. <laughs> so I'm imagining the chief of photographer. He says, "Move in, move in, and bam!" You know. So that was the image that I started with, and so now I'm off and running. So um, we'll see how it all goes. But it was fascinating to me because Kelly would be Ed Kelly became a real power. He served three terms mm-hmm. as mayor, but he was very involved with Roosevelt, very supportive of Roosevelt. Was even the one that orchestrated Roosevelt's run for a third term. He was one of the main people that picked Harry Truman to be vice president. So it was the thing that fascinates me. Okay, now we talked about where the Irish came from. Mm-hmm. Honora getting off the boat with these children, not not a dime, you know. Right. And then her grandson not only becomes the mayor of Chicago, but becomes a real power in the nation. How, how does that happen? And then what does it do to a family when you have some people that are? powerful and wealthy and some maybe that aren't doing so well mm-hmm. so those are all the questions that i'm um dealing with and of course it's also prohibition and the jazz age and gangsters and al capone and so there's a lot of things going on in this book that's going to be an exciting read i already know it um i know that <laughs> that of irish blood um was really interesting i mean coming up into the hundred year of of the irish independence um, of the the fight, um, that was that was interesting to read coming into, you know, into this year, and all the historical well, was, activities that were going on. So, I was fascinated by the women mm-hmm. that were involved. It had been kind of forgotten, even to the point that the woman Elizabeth O'Farrell, who was the one who went out when they had decided to surrender, and they she went out while the British soldiers were still shooting with right. the white flag. So in all the pictures where she should be standing, in, in she was standing next to um, Padraig Pierce when he did actually do the surrender to the mm-hmm. British general, they actually wiped her out. They just eliminated her. Now, I would say it shows the kind of world we're living in now that all the roles of the women have really been emphasized in mm-hmm. the 100th year anniversary. But when I was writing the book, I didn't know that, and I just wanted to make sure that it, that they, the sense of who they were as characters. One of the interesting things to me was they started, um, the idea I think they had, Maud Gone and others, was that the Irish people were so dispirited. Right. They really had given up. And... Um, 1898 was the 100th anniversary of the 1798 Rebellion. Mm-hmm. And Maud Vaughn, Ethna Carberry, and Alice Milligan, these three women, went around Ireland on their own, and they would go to these little towns, and they would teach them songs, songs that they wrote. They weren't even like ballads from of the time and put on plays. And the idea was that if the Irish people could understand that they had a glorious past and they didn't have to accept the kind of because this is the time when the Irish language is being, was mm-hmm. being outlawed. It was really a difficult time, and uh, it was the whole then revival of Gaelic literature of the Irish language, <laughs> and women were very involved. And I love the idea of women using theater and dance and music and poetry to kind of arouse the spirit. Because if you don't have people with spirit and pride then you're not never going to have a revolution. And I, I thought it was really interesting. And even Patrick Pierce, he was inspired. His mother and his aunt, his great aunt, his mother and his mother's aunt, were native Irish speakers. And they were the ones that really opened up Ireland to him. I mean, there is a, in all the old literature, Ireland is always portrayed as a woman. Mm-hmm. And she's this, the, the goddess of sovereignty. And what her power comes from her generosity. I mean, it is sovereignty isn't about owning property. Sovereignty is about taking care of your people. And I love that image. And I love the fact that, I mean, it was so such an uneven battle, the Irish Revolution, and yet they won. Right. It's amazing. Right. And right now, I think it's really interesting 
that you have. And then came the Civil War, which it does seem very sad, and that's part of the story in Mm -hmm. Irish Blood, because she's based in Paris. Why do revolutions then have to lead to these bloody civil wars, which they seem to do? And yet right now, today, this minute, the two parties that represent the opposite sides in the Civil War, Fianna Foyle and Fianna Gael, are in government together, are, Mm -hmm. are, you know, cooperating together. They're allied together for the first time. So um, I think modern Ireland is a story of healing and of reconciliation and moving forward. And also, I think a friend of mine once said that uh, music was the coagulus of the Irish culture, that the Irish were pushed to the brink of extinction, and they were saved by music. They were saved by song, and they were saved by well, you know, you yes. spend enough evenings with sing songs and these things that uh, come out of nowhere. I, I remember a story about you going into, I can't remember, it was the store where they sold wool or something, and the next thing you're in a sing song, and they, <laughs> they're giving the kids candy. Yep. And that's the thing that there's great joy in Ireland with all the tragic history. There's great joy. And and that's so true because, it, it again, it, it just comes, I just really think that there's so much, in Ireland that just, you know, it's, it's permeated, like I said earlier. And even though you may be surrounded <clears throat> by things that, you know, you can still see the tragedy. You can still see how difficult things are. But there's always that sense of positivity and joy and happiness. And, and I really think it's just because, you know what, things could always be worse. It's that, that right. ability to look on the bright side that you always find there. Right, and that survival. I mean, a friend of mine is the uh, director of the new Smithsonian National Museum of African American mm-hmm. uh, History and Culture. And he was on 60 Minutes, and they found a slave, parts of a slave ship. And he said, you know, for African Americans, the whole slave history has always been so painful. He said, but I, I want them to think about people on that ship that were determined to live, that endured and, and had families and moved forward and, and did things and lived their lives with, with a certain amount of joy, too. And I think it's the same with the Irish. For many, many years, the first commemoration of the Irish, the Great Starvation, mm-hmm. was in, in Ireland was 2009, the first. Right. And part of it was because it was a very difficult subject. No one wanted to talk about it. But I think it's important to talk about it, first of all, because you can't really heal a wound until you're honest about what right. happened. But the second thing is we survived. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the amazing thing. We survived. And we, and I think it's it's doing a disservice to the people that fought so hard to survive if you don't acknowledge it and feel pride in them. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, with all the tragedy... There is this uh, strong life force and determination. And I, I, I love that word permeate as you use it. I'll probably steal it. I want to warn you, Jody. But uh, because, because I think, you know, in the Irish language, there's no distinction between the natural and the supernatural. Right. I mean, and there's a sense that the very landscape is um, spiritual, that it's alive and that you're in contact. There was a great line in, uh, I think it was Pinchas McKenna who said, the Irish, the Celtic uh, religion believed that you could enter the other world through a lake, a spring, a cave, a well, or a sudden insight. And I, you know how you can go, right now as we're talking, aren't you going in your imagination to places? When you described that lost valley, I could see it, I could see it. And there is something in in the human being that you we can do that, our imagination. And and that's what Ireland does to you. It really kind of splits open your imagination and connects you in ways because you're right, it's permeated with something very special. And well and, and that has to be a lot of the reason why you have I mean, in, in Ireland, you know, the the writing and the music um, you know, the artists, everything seems to draw back to the land. Um, yes, in, in some way, shape or form, if, if you ever talk to anybody, no matter what kind of art form they work in, it always goes back to the land and to the past and, and has a really deep meaning. And I think that's just yes. one of the things that, you know, it, it again, you know, permeates. Yeah, that, that will be the I, word. I, for me, that's our word. 
Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like in uh, Gone with the Wind when he tells her, you're Irish, you don't realize that you have this love of the land. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one reason why, because when the Irish came here, they were really urban people because to get a farm, uh, you know, you know, you needed money, you needed seeds, you needed all those things. And I mean, in Iowa, and I just came from uh, Kansas City, I mean, there's huge farms, Irish farms in Missouri. Mm -hmm. I just imagine those Irish farmers coming during the great starvation and, and seeing this fertile, fertile land that they could farm and, you know, with the opportunity. But I think there's a longing for the land. I think there's a longing to mm -hmm. connect. And uh, I think it's in us. And uh, it's interesting to me. Now, we're really going off the subject, but we spend <laughs> our summers in northern in northern Wisconsin. And mm -hmm. it, it, it reminds me of Ireland and some of the things. And there's a lot of I Irish Americans mm -hmm. that are drawn to those places and I think there is still the hunger to connect to the land, to nature. I think you're right. Um, now, I do have one question um, I kind of put out on Facebook before I did this. You know, I'm going to talk to Mary Pat Kelly. Um, does anybody have a question? And I do have one from Kara. And she's, she just wants to know, what do you hope people take away from your books about um, the history of the Irish or uh you know, kind of the Irish people in general. Is there something that you really hope people will will take away after reading your books that that you think is really important? Well, I guess I think um, the whole idea that you that you can endure tragedy and you can triumph. Mm -hmm. Also, the idea of women and the that in Irish mythology and in 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 actual Irish life. The strength of women. They weren't the stereotypic victims that they've been portrayed. Right. In, uh, in, uh, and I think uh, hope that in the in the worst circumstances, there were people that stood up and said that they were going to survive. And also, I think compassion for all those that have gone before, and a sense, especially for Irish Americans, to value what our ancestors did and to celebrate it. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying very hard. I'm working with um, Roma Downey, you know, from mm -hmm. Touch by an Angel, right. to try to do a series based on Galway Bay and of Irish blood. And I would re really hope it happens because I think, speaking as someone who didn't know my history, who took me a long time to really find it, I think Irish Americans would be astounded. And also... I have seen a lot of misrepresentations of the Great Starvation where right. the people are just shown as ciphers and the spirit that they had and the way that they resisted and, and survived. And I think it's important to tell that story. And also the faith, the faith of the people. That was a, It wasn't the kind of bureaucratic, um, hierarchical church faith. It was a real living faith, and it was a, a faith in each other. And a faith that there is a um, a creative spirit in the world. There is God. There is, I mean, you know how the Irish love their saints yes. and um, the Blessed Mother. And I think it goes back to much even older than Christianity that there are these guiding spirits, these protective spirits in the world. And I think it makes your life easier to live if you believe that there's someone that cares about you and that they're, they're, you're doing well, whether it's called St. Patrick or... Buddha or whatever, you know, that there is a way to connect to a deeper, more spiritual world. Oh, I love that. I love that. And I think that's a great place to to kind of start to wrap up. Now, but before we go, I do want to know if you have somebody who, you know, contacts you and says, I'm going to Ireland, it's finally happening. What three places would you recommend that they not miss? They not miss? Mm -hmm. Well, I think if they want a city, I would say Galway okay. because Dublin is a wonderful place, but Dublin is very much of a modern city. Mm -hmm. I think Galway, you still have the sense right in the center of the town is some of the very old buildings, mm -hmm. St. Nicholas Cathedral and just the way the river goes through Galway. So Galway City, I would say. Okay. Then Connemara. Mm -hmm. I love um, Recess and Loch Ina where I'm talking about yep. and to go to the coast and to and there's not you can the best thing to do is to actually go out on a boat and and really have that sense of the fishermen going out then i i and i do love 
the north. The, my husband is from Jerome. I've spent a lot of time in Derry. I think Derry, as, as a jumping off place to go to Donegal, is really beautiful. Glencombe Kill in Donegal, mm-hmm. wonderful. And, but, so I guess those would be the three places I would say. Galway, Connemara, and Donegal, with Derry as your kind of base. Derry is a great, great city. Um, Isn't and, it? Yeah, it's in the, yeah. it's compact. You can really uh, get around, and it's a those places are a lot of fun too. Mm-hmm. I I wouldn't want to go any place in Ireland where you didn't have fun, right? <laughs> I haven't found any place in Ireland yet where you aren't having fun. No, exactly. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh gosh. Well, thank you so much. Um, thank you, Jody, I, and thanks I, for all you're doing. And I admire you so much the way you keep up with your Facebook page and you do all those things because I know that's not easy and you never know when somebody's going to be looking for information and it'll kind of happen on it and then you can you can share it. I mean that that's what I want to do is just share my love of Ireland and the Irish people so because I've never had anybody go who wasn't who came home and was disappointed. Have you? I have not. I, I no. don't know that it's possible but again mm-hmm. I just I so appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. And, oh, my pleasure. And this I has been fun. I can't wait for the next book. Thank you. It's, it's gonna, I'm sitting right at my desk and you're going to go right back to work. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you very much, Jody. Thank right. you. Continued. Yes. Bye-bye. Bye. I hope you really enjoyed Mary Pat Kelly's interview with me. It was such a delight to talk to her. And as you can tell, she's a brilliant storyteller, uh, both verbally and in her books. So if you haven't picked up either Galway Bay or Of Irish Blood, I highly recommend them. And I will have links to the books in both Amazon and Barnes and Noble in the show notes. So whichever place you prefer to buy your books, you'll uh, have one click access. Um, Thank you so much for listening again. And if you have any questions on this podcast or any previous podcasts, please feel free to email me. Jody at IrelandFamilyVacations.com. Until next time, Slangafol. <laughs>